Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guests are Max Kaiser and Stacy Herbert, the people behind Kaiser Report. We talk about broadcast media, how the news is a lot like bread and circuses from Roman times, and how they're driven by pharmaceutical and defense industries. Max and Stacy also tell us about how they see a financial system collapse coming and how Bitcoin will be the safe haven. Max and Stacy, how are you guys these days? Oh, great. Loving lockdown, Jimmy Song. <laughs> how, how is lockdown where you guys are? Well, you know, we are on the keto diet and Max is losing quite a bit of weight and getting really ripped, but... You know, he's making so many keto desserts that I'm afraid I have gained about four pounds. Yeah, so anyway. keto, keto lockdown is uh, pretty good, really. Um, it's fascinating. You know, we were just talking about how this is the really this this decade is now being defined. You know, the, the previous decade started off with 9-11, if you recall, back in 2001. And it kind of dominated that decade in, in a lot of ways. And seems like this COVID lockdown is dominant, is really defining this decade, you know, so that's a new era, a very, very interesting era that we're now participating in. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, the might even define the entire century. I know, like in history books, they always start uh, the 20th century history with World War One. So maybe this is the beginning of the 21st century. Yeah, it could be. That, that's right. Uh, but it's definitely very different than what we had before, just even six, seven months ago. Obviously, you guys have been doing shows for a long time, broadcast media. Um, can you tell us the story of how you guys both got into broadcast media and what kept you there? Mm, well, you know, I, I actually had a TV show in high school back in 1978. TV, our high school had closed circuit television and a full on professional uh, television studio because it was in the suburbs of New York City and a lot of the students were the uh, the children of uh, television executives. So uh, we got secondhand stuff, but it was all broadcast quality stuff. So uh, that was uh, kind of the beginning of my TV career. Then I did radio at, in college at WNYU. Then um, in Los Angeles, I did KLSX radio for when I was running the Hollywood Stock Exchange, also did a lot of CNBC appearances. Then in uh, Paris, I was the token English-speaking guy who would get on TV a lot and talk about the global economy. And that turned into our first television show in Paris that we started doing. And, and then we started making shows for Al Jazeera English. And then, then we started doing TV shows uh, for RT. So that's kind of the the history of it. And I was, I guess I went to UCLA and I was studying English literature. I, I didn't really kind of have a plan. You know, a lot of people in college don't have plans. And I guess I kind of thought I would go to law school or something after. And one of the classes I was looking, you know, for the next semester, the next quarter as the UCLA system was, and I was looking for some classes to take. And one that looked interesting was called the, the Business of Hollywood. And I thought it looked interesting because Francis Ford Coppola was going to be one of the guest lecturers, the head of Columbia Pictures International, the, the, the Japanese opera singer. He, he came in to speak and the class itself was taught by Peter Guber, who was the head of Columbia Pictures in, in Los Angeles at the time. And he, they only accepted, it was a master's degree level course, but they accepted three undergrads, including Peter Guber's daughter also, Norman Brokaw's daughter. He was the head of uh, he was the head of William Morris uh, Talent Agency at the time, and his daughter got accepted, and I did. However, Peter Guber told me that one of the conditions of being an undergraduate to take the class was to have an internship. So I was really put off by that at first. I was like, I'm not going to work for free. And then he said, Well, you know, you could work for my friend. He's a producer who made Close Encounters. The Sting and Taxi Driver. And as soon as he said Taxi Driver, I was like, okay, I'm in because I love that film, right? That was my favorite. And I, I, I really identified with Travis Pickle. So I, I started working in Hollywood. And right then, it, literally the month his, his ex-wife's book, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again, came out, Julia Phillips. And it was an exciting time, met a lot of really cool people, had so much fun. It wasn't like work at all, but it was all about storytelling. And I was what is called a D girl, a development girl, worked on scripts, 
many scripts. First, my first like week, I was, I think, like 19 or 20, just turned 20, working with Richard Dreyfus, Gwyneth Paltrow's father, Bruce Paltrow. So I was like really young and I thought this was the way Hollywood was and it was all easy. And then, um, then I moved to London and worked at a place called Capital Films where we distributed films internationally and then uh, worked in comedy in the UK as well with loads and loads of famous comedians there. And it was on a break from a BBC series that I did an animated comedy series called Pope Town that it took so long. It took like two and a half, three years to make. And it was so exhausting. And that the day I finished, I went down to the south of France and I met Max that day. I thought I was there for vacation for two months. And instead, like the next wave of my global journey into media and all that stuff started. Wow. And uh, and you guys come from sort of different parts of the media business. Uh, what What was it like sort of coming together and starting to produce these shows together? Well, my background was, like I said, like very, very traditional Hollywood script making, right? The, the, everybody in Hollywood, all script writers, all D girls, you have to read Aristotle's poetics. And that's the basic raw, that's the tool to determine what is a good story. Just like Aristotle's uh, ideas on money is what, what good money is. Like he also set the standard for a good story. And I think that's not a, a, an accident. You know, those two are the same It's money tells a story. And it communicates important information. So, you know, when Max started telling me, when I met him and he was telling me about being a stockbroker and all the crimes he committed, I was like, you are sick. <laughs> well, you know, like what bankers do. I was like, I, I couldn't believe it because the bad guy doesn't win, right? That's not supposed to happen. And yet then, you know, he was reading the Financial Times every day. And then I started reading the Financial Times. And I was like, oh, my God, Max, look at this. You said this. And he's like, yeah, what did you think I was lying? Like, this is what happens. So I was just really fascinated. It was like a fantastic story for me. I, I had never heard anything like this, like how Wall Street actually operated and what you thought it operated like. Yeah, yeah. The point I was making is that it's uh, it's set up to be by nature, there's a certain element of uh, fraud to the to the way it's set up. I mean, we talk about that now, but in terms of central banking, that it's at, at its core, it's committing a basic fraud. So that's kind of what the point I was been, been making. It's easy to predict what what's going to be the next crisis because they, they generally, these things are just repackaged and re put a, rebranded as something different. They blow up every few years and they, there's a bailout of some type. And then the cycle repeats. So it's not hard to predict. Uh, that's why we've been pretty good at predicting. A lot of the things that we do predict is that it follows a pretty uh, standard script. So, you know, Stacy understands scripts, script writing very well. So you just apply the basics of script writing to finance and you find that there's a lot of overlap. Uh, there's always a uh, beginning, middle and end. There's always a good guy and a bad guy. A, a, a third act a dramatic point on page 64 or whatever it is. And then there's the, uh, the finale. So these things kind of go and, and they go and they just see this, uh, it's human nature really. So human nature is in, in economics is quite prevalent. This is what people are saying that they, they call themselves contrarian investors many times That's they're saying that human nature is very predictable. And I go against what is typical human nature. That's called a contrarian investment. And human nature is uh, always in, in, in every theatrical play, story. It's always, the drama is always based on predictable human nature. That's what drama captures. Drama is the best story, according to Aristotle. And it was man versus man, man versus himself, or man versus nature. So those are the three classic setups of any great drama. One of the things I really appreciate about you guys' show is that you you do have sort of that storytelling flair into something that a lot of people consider kind of boring when that's the financial system. But speaking about, you know, the whole media business and uh, and what's going on, I, we, we see a lot of things in the media that, you know, it, it's, it makes you scratch your head a little bit. What, what would you guys say is sort of the problem with broadcast media? Well, it's been corporatized. So when I was growing up, it was public access and the public domain and and the the frequencies were government regulated and news was simply that, the news. But starting in the 80s, it became deregulated and corporatized. And so it's much more deeper into the entertainment section of the media conglomerate than news. So news has pretty much been 
decapitalized, has been defunded. So you don't really, nobody has any news anymore. It's, it's the entertainment is, is, takes different shapes and varieties. And one of the forms of entertainment is cable news. That's an entertainment program. Um, you have uh, the nightly news is a lot more news-like, but uh, again, it uh, sticks toward you know entertainment. It's like uh, in the 1980s when MTV came along and suddenly ugly rock and rollers all had to become beautiful, right? So, And music, in a lot of ways, changed dramatically at that point as well. How does corporate money influence the media? Corporate money influences the media by using it as advertising. The, the keys to advertising go back to Edward Bernays, you know, and the discovery of his cousin, Sigmund Freud, and the subconscious and the unconscious in the 19th century. And so it tries to get people to do things that are bypass their logical mind and to act on impulse and to act on emotional impulse. And per Freud's work, you know, act on a, a sexual level. That's why America is 70% consumer economy, right? It's not a production economy, producing economy, it's consumption. And that consumption is driven by advertising and advertising is driven by emotional manipulation. And that's driven by the corporatization and the huge money put into manipulating the masses to consume. And that's what we have today. And the problem is that it's not a diversified economy. And, and so when a crisis like COVID hits, there's not enough diversity to, to protect it becomes very fragile. So I'd say the economy is the opposite of anti-fragile. It's very fragile. Uh, so Stacy, you worked in Hollywood. Is sort of, is what Max saying true that producing a new show is nowadays a lot more like entertainment, like uh, you're producing scripts in Hollywood? Well, you could just look at any sort of clips of the news pre-1982, 83, 84, when the first cable news started to arrive on the scene and versus now, of course, it's kind of like professional wrestling. They call it professional wrestling, right? But is it professional wrestling when they're throwing each other on the floor and pretending to body slam each other and all that stuff? No, it's entertainment. But you know what? Um, pro professional wrestling, WWE, it draws massive crowds. And then what are you going to get? People outside saying, hey, this is fake. This is fake. Don't you guys know it's fake? It's like, of course they know it's fake. They go there to have fun. Same thing happens when somebody tunes into either. Of course, you can't do both. You've got to do one. You've got to choose MSNBC or Fox News. Whatever one's going to like assuage, you know, like stroke your biases, right? You want all your biases confirmed. You want, you want the conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories are amazing fun, right? Mousetrap, the sort of like whodunit sort of things. They're so much fun. Those are the longest running sort of um, plays in London and the longest sort of plays in Broadway. People love to go to those sort of things. So that's why they tune in to their respective news agency. This is how you earn the ad revenue. Nobody wants to tune in to the bad news, right? That's why we shoot the messenger. That's an old, old phrase. You shoot the messenger. Who wants to hear dreary news, right? You want to hear fun news. You want to hear Donald Trump's golden showers. Like that's way more fun than, and then trying to figure out what's wrong with the economy and the Cantillon effect and all that. According to how they do it, of course, Max and I also deliver in a very fun way so that people understand because you could either bore people with monetary policy uh, conversations, or you can entertain them. And they might actually learn more if they're entertained while doing it. I mean, that Shakespeare's plays were like that, by the way. You know, Shakespeare, there were usually two, three, four different levels for every single scene, every single conversation. One scene was, one meaning is like directed at the elite. One meaning is for the, the masses. That's why you have all the jesters and the fools and, and the fun characters to make the people laugh. But at the same time, they're also telling you, you know, a lot about your society and culture and the norms and, you know, the acceptable behavior and things like that. I, I think that's the best description of good art that I think I've heard. What kind of content do you think uh, these incentives kind of create? Uh, you, you have to be kind of entertaining. And it's uh, more towards, uh, I, I think, what you said, catering to what you already believe or affirming uh, your pre preconceived notions and so on. What, what kind of content does that create? Okay, well, look at MSNBC or CNN, a, a frequent advertiser. You have pharmaceutical companies and you have Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. So you sell war 
and you sell, you know, you gaslight the people, you make sure that they're mentally ill, and you could sell them more pharmaceuticals to make them feel better. <laughs> you know, those are the two big advertisers on there. And that's what that's what they get. It's, it's no different, by the way, from if you look at any sort of uh, documentary or historical, uh, you know, review of what happened in the Roman Colosseum. Like th these were the same sort of thing. That was the cable news of the day for to have gladiator games and gore and, and, and sort of gruesome sort of horrible events. It entertained the people and it made them love their Caesar, their emperor. And th the same thing happens today. This is, this is the game. You know, it's a two party system in our, in our setup. I mean, w there is a difference between the American corporate media and say European media, which is more, uh, state funded, but there is like um, a, a similar it's satellite. You know, they have satellite and cape, not cable really. It's called satellite television. So they have more channels there. But in terms of the U.S., like it's it's just think of ancient Rome, and that's what you get. Yeah, they replace bread and circuses with Prozac and cable. So is it really pharmaceuticals and uh, defense contractors that do all of the advertising on these channels? Is is that what it yeah, is? Not, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. MSNBC, absolutely. And, and then guests many times are also retired generals, retired CAA folks who come on to push war, and then they cut to the ad for the defense contractor. So they're kind of gaslighting the American public, <laughs> if you will? Uh, yeah, I think you could kind of see the results, right? There's a large part of the population that cannot think, and they're, uh, they don't understand the world around them. It, but they gaslight themselves. It's not just like the population. They, they themselves can't understand. Look at, look at what's happened since 2016. The New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC all said like Hillary Clinton was going to win in a landslide, 99% certain that it was a joke. And, and actually, they were ready to deplatform people who even said that uh, Trump had a chance. Like, this is ridiculous notion for you to even say. And now look at them. Then they've had four years of of genuine insanity that th th these are people that gaslit themselves. It's a horror show to, to watch, but they played themselves the DNC convention. It just shows that they wasted four years because they have no policy. They have no candidates. They've got nothing. They've got a, they're going into this election, you know, with the, with the, the worst poker hand possible. It, it does feel like there's uh, been a trend towards even more of a monoculture, both, on the left and the right a little bit. I, I mean, do you think that's in due in part to the money or the financial situation of these media companies? Uh, well, Les Moonves, who was the head of Viacom at the time until he got me too'd, he said in 2016 that Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's great for us. That tells you everything you need to know about the incentives that are there for the news. Uh, what bleeds leads, right? That's what the the old classic was. Like people, people want to hear that stuff. Like I said, it's a gladiator fight. They want to see somebody beheaded in the square, and that's what they want. And they want to they want to be shocked. They want to be outraged. They want to boo. They want to jeer. They want to cheer. That's what they want. Yeah, yeah. There should be diversity in the media, and there should be public media, and there should be a public domain, and th those things should be protected. You know the. The success of a country should be judged by the size of its public domain, not by its private domain. So America is successful to the extent that it has public parks, that it might, that it used to have public media, that it has NASA, right? Th that's why America is successful. It's not successful because it has big private corporations, because we see that doesn't really help anybody. It's the extent of their public domain. That's how you determine the success of a country. So the United States, since you know, the last 50, 60 years, has become progressively less successful because there's less public domain, less public libraries, less public discourse, less public good, less public welfare. It's, it's become a, um, a more, more feudal in nature, like feudalism. And we're heading into a very sharply feudal period now where you've got basically kings and serfs, which is the natural byproduct of the system that's been allowed to run amok. Talking about all of these things uh, with respect to Bitcoin, obviously Bitcoin changes a lot of different incentives. And if we were to ever you know, adopt a Bitcoin standard, things would change. Um, so question for you guys, how do you think things change uh, with the adoption of Bitcoin? Back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, before we went off the gold standard for an international unit of account, 
the elite had a harder time controlling the population. And you saw it in all of these weird CIA programs like MKUltra and, you know, these, these attempts to control the population, to mind control them. Um, I think once we no longer needed the population, the elite no longer needed the population from 1971 because you didn't need the consent of the governed. You just had, you had the printing press from 1971. And I think we're seeing a lot of the unrest and the similar to the period right before we went off the gold standard. Think of the 60s and you think of, of mass unrest, civil unrest, uh, assassinations of all sorts of civil leaders. It was a very tumultuous time that spilled over into the 70s as well. And we're seeing a similar sort of thing of mass unrest out in the street for a similar reason, I think, which is that we're bankrupt. We're, we've we've reached the we reached the end of the 1945 to 1971 period, and we went bust in that period. Now we've gone from 1971 to two, 2020, and we've we have way too much debt. We had we were we were on like there was nothing that hindered us for the last 50 years, and now you know, we're about to hit 50 years into this fiat system and there's quadrillions and quadrillions of debt and derivatives that nobody knows what the underlying asset is. Bitcoin came along at the right time with the right message that in the Genesis block, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. I mean, that was what we were talking about on Kai's report. That was the moment of clarity for all around the world. Like that was your chance to be woke for real, not about bathrooms and all that sort of stuff. This is like the genuine fabric of the world around you, which money is a message telling, communicating to you what is the economy, what is the truth of what's happening. Bitcoin spurred this notion that just like in the the period leading up to the French and American revolutions, where we, we realized that we could govern ourselves there was no divine right of kings. Here we saw the separation of state and money. Like I think once pe- once you see it, it's hard to unsee. And 2020, I think, is the pivotal year. And I think that the fact that we saw that money printer go, brrr, which again, that's media, that's communication, that's art, that's that's conveying a message, a powerful message that people understood instantly, so fast. It spread virally around the world instantaneously that people understood exactly the significance of what is happening right now. Uh, yeah, that separation of money and state is the key concept, the key issue that's never been possible before, really. And so you have now this idea of individual sovereignty. And I think that as individuals, we are inherently have a good nature, but um, when we become governed and the government becomes corrupt, then people can do nasty things. So without having that influence and just having a more of a more of a natural reaction to our natural world with natural Bitcoin, then we should be divorcing ourselves from the nation state as that concept is understood. The message that the dollar sends is that we do live in neo-feudal times. We do have this Cantillon effect. There are the elite and they get bailed out. And there are, you know, there are two tiers, two systems of justice. And every single time in history, that always inevitably happens, whether it's the Roman Empire, or the French, you know, kingdom, they, they all end up at that point where it's in the beginning, you know, it's, you can kind of hide it, but by the point you re- the time you reach the fourth turning, it all come, it becomes bloody and falls apart because nobody likes injustice and nobody likes a fraud, you know, and it's a fraudulent system. And these guys ruling the world, a lot of, you know, the Rontier billionaire class, you know, Jamie Dimon, why is he a billionaire? Like, is he, is he Jeff Bezos? Is he Elon Musk? Is he Steve Jobs? No. So I think the argument you guys are making is that we're sort of at the end of the rope on the fiat system and that the, all the bread and circus of the current sort of media environment is is an indication of its failing. I, it, what what's after that? Like, is it really kind of like total collapse? I think that it is comparable to Soviet Union collapse, uh, early nineteen nineties. You know that it's just that they went bankrupt and then one day it just collapsed. 
And I think that's in America's immediate future is that you're going to have a Soviet Union-like collapse. You know, one of our uh, guests going back a few years, Dmitry Orlov, wrote a great essay called The Collapse Gap, where he said that both the U.S. and Soviet Union would collapse, except that it would take the U.S. a few years longer, because they both essentially bankrupted each other for during the Cold War. So I think that that, that prophecy, if you will, that prediction seems to be coming true. The U.S. is simply going to collapse. And that'll mean the dollar collapses and that'll mean prices go a lot higher. So people, suddenly the food and energy cri- uh, costs double and triple in a matter of a few weeks. And that'll that'll be a profound, a profoundly different environment. And it does come back to media and information and censorship of information throughout history. Why does the emperor fiddle while Rome burns? The same reason why the king of Armenia did the same, you know, that the whole notion of shoot the messenger, you know, you could read it back as far as uh, Plutarch back in the ancient Greek time. So around 100 AD, he wrote of the king of Armenia was a messenger arrived to tell him that there was war coming, mm-hmm. <laughs> that there was troops coming heading their way. And he, he beheaded the messenger because he didn't like to hear this message. And so anybody who saw like troops gathering and moving forward as these uh, encroaching troops were arriving, like none of them wanted to tell the king because they didn't want to be beheaded as well. It's literally like that gif of this is fine. Everything's burning. Like at, at the end days, every single empire arrives at that same moment where they don't want to hear the bad news because they, they, they themselves are like, you know, with the Soviets, you think of the Soviets and you think of all those old, old men, right? No new ideas. They didn't. They've. They had already exhausted all their ideas. Doubled down on those bad ideas. Just like we keep on doubling down on more and more free money, more and more free money. Keep printing. Keep printing. Keep printing. That's the last idea we have. That is it. So if that's they're going to they're going to print to the graveyard. They'll die of exhaustion. Printing. 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 The same thing has happened throughout history. You know, it'll disappear. Just the. It's hard to know how it's going to happen here, but all the fabric of everything has already started to disintegrate. When 2016, when the elite media had it so wrong, so profoundly, they also had it wrong at the same time in the United Kingdom. We were there at the same time. We were in London when they did Brexit, and then we came here, and we were here for the 2016 election. All the elite media got exactly wrong. It was so shocking. Like they were so convinced that this, the the like they had lost so much touch with ninety nine percent of the population and had no idea what those people thought because they it's been forty nine years since we went off the gold standard. They didn't need the people. They were paid no matter what. Raytheon and Lockheed gets paid no matter what. <laughs> like they, so they pay, um, you know, Rachel Maddow and Anderson Cooper no matter what. So there's no need at all. There has been no incentive for any of those, you know, those media, those cable news stars who are earning what, 10, 20, 30 million a year. Why would they go to Indiana and go figure out what Joe Bag of Donuts thinks, right? Why, why would you want to go leave your cushy Manhattan, you know, apartment and all the nice restaurants there and go, you know, slog it out with some potato farmers? You don't, you're not going to do that. That's what they, they don't do anymore. But that hubris always leads to your decline. That always destroys the entire, the entirety of everything around you. So, you know, just like the money printer thing, I think you're going to see more and more of this um, sort of conspiracy theories and they're out to get us and those Russians, it's, it's Putin, Putin's there, Putin's doing this, Putin ruined our economy, Putin crashed our, you know, our Hollywood industry, he crashed Silicon Valley, like anything that goes wrong, they'll blame him. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the Roman emperors did the same sort of thing, they were br- blaming the barbarians and then finally, the, you know, the people just said, hey, barbarians, come on in, <laughs> like maybe you guys are better. Yeah, debasing the currency and uh, blaming the barbarians. I, I think what you guys are saying is basically there is no incentive for any of these people in the media to actually find out the truth because they're going to get paid anyway through essentially what is the fiat system. So when we get on, say, the Bitcoin standard, how how does that get fixed? What what causes an Anderson Cooper to want to know about what Joe Bag of Donuts wants in, in Indiana thinks? Okay. Now, who was right? Who was wrong about Warren Buffett, for example? Like 
everything Kaiser Report has been saying for 10 years has been legitimized and confirmed this past week by Warren Buffett, dumping all his bank shares, dumping all his fiat, essentially shorting the dollar, essentially, by going along gold, uh, Barrick Gold. He bought $560 million worth of shares of Barrick Gold, something he said he'd never do. But you know, none of the media, none of the so-called financial media signaled that at all. Like they, they were not, they had not told their audience the context of this economy and financial system and monetary system that could lead to this. So how are they even explaining this to their audience? You know, we don't need to because our audience is already there. Our audience already knew the context of the culture and the economy and the society. uh, So that even though I was surprised when Trump won, like, I'm not surprised. Like, I'm not, um, I don't have PTSD, like clearly the people on MSNBC do. Like they are suffering um, a genuine mental illness. That's because they were living in denial. They were living with their biases. They, they only they, That's the only thing they could see. So in terms of uh, Bit- Bitcoin, again, you know, like a gold, like gold before it, you know, you can't cheat it, right? You, you, you can't live in denial for 40, 50 years. With Bitcoin, you can't do that. You couldn't do that with gold. That's why once the U.S. empire was powerful enough, we abandoned the gold standard. Fifty years of bread and circuses. Even the the crowds are like bored of these games. You know, humans are funny because they're very curious, but they don't necessarily like to see the truth. The truth has a way of asserting itself. You know, particularly in financial markets, usually have that phrase regression to the mean. You know, things come back to the long term trend. And that's the truth. In the news business, the truth of the situation tends to prevail at some point. And you can pretend that it doesn't exist or you can dance around it or you can present an alternative version of the truth. But eventually the truth comes out. In in the case of money now, we have a very truthful store of value in Bitcoin, the most truthful hard money that's ever existed. It uh, It's guided by mathematics and there is nobody who's can mess around with it and it's deflationary and it's desirable, it's portable, it's divisible, and it can fund individual sovereignty. And I think one of the big sea changes this year in 2020 in Bitcoin is that, you know, back in 2011, when we started in Bitcoin, everyone was basically focused primarily on payments. You know, our first investment in the space was in BitPay in 2011 in their seed rounds, I think the second seed round. And they were gonna be the PayPal of Bitcoin. It was all about payments. Uh, now, you know, nine, 10 years later, this, the primary story now is really not about payments. It's about store of value. And it's not about companies being able to use Bitcoin for payments. It's about companies using Bitcoin as a store of value. So enter MicroStrategies, who just put in $250 million of their cash reserve into Bitcoin. That's the truth. That's the truth of Bitcoin, is that it's not going to give micro strategies a way to hedge themselves against inflation and to give themselves some sovereignty against censorship and all kinds of other stuff. I just read a story today, some much smaller company. It's a restaurant company. It's got four or five restaurants. Uh, They just announced they're putting all of their free cash into Bitcoin. So that meme, that idea got out. The truth came out, and now it's spreading in the corporate community. And now there will be media companies at some point that'll be to have us sitting on a ton of Bitcoin and their brethren in CNN and ABC and NBC and CBS will be stuck in fiat world. They'll go out of business and the, the media companies with a horde of Bitcoin will still be in business and they have been influenced by Bitcoin and they see that the truth has power. And so that permeates into everything they do. So they do truthful stories. They do truthful news. They, they are aligned to the North star of the Bitcoin truth. You know, we say this all the time with Bitcoin is, you know, you don't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes you. It changes people. And people tend to become savers, for example. And that's a very different mentality than being a consumer that's in debt all the time to shift to become someone who's a saver and has individual wealth, individual uh, financial independence. That's a much different type of person who then approaches their family, their culture, their society, their country, their world in a much different way. And Bitcoin has the ability to have a consciousness shift, to change people's consciousness in that way. So I think that's how Bitcoin will change the media, is that we'll see the appearance of Bitcoin-funded 
media companies who would then reflect the values of Bitcoin in what they do. And that is the truth. And the truth always prevails. Right now, consumers are seeking entertainment and bread and circus. But under a Bitcoin standard, you're thinking that they would preferences are going to change and they're going to seek truth much more. And that, in turn, will change these media companies. Well, to some degree, the preferences or the incentives, it's incentives versus dependency. So people are in, are, are in debt and consumers and being subjected to media um, that's the ersatz or fiat media because they're addicted to it. They have a dependence. And so when you get on a, on a Bitcoin standard and a Bitcoin savings, you, you are no longer an addict. You have recovered, right? So you, you, are in, you are in fiat recovery and you've given up your addiction to fiat, your addiction to fiat food, fiat entertainment, everything associated with fiat. So that just, it's a natural, that, so the incentives are that you are avoiding the addiction of fiat money, consumerism, and fake news. Right. So you've recovered from those things. And then what happens after that point is your preferences or your incentives are more in line with the universe itself. Right. The universe has an incentive, and that is to perpetuate itself in a way that's diverse, harmonious, and peaceful. That's the universal incentive. But we go against that. We, we have these anxiety problems. We, we're at we're not comfortable with ourselves. We're, we're, we're ridden with uh, neuroses. That's the way one in seven Americans are on antipsychotic drugs. Because, so we have a nation of psychotics. So we, we need to get, once you cure yourself of fiat addiction, you then are now more in tune with nature. And the nature incentives are what, what they are. I mean, it's, it's uh, in harmony with how things are interacting in a diverse, ecologically diverse way that's satisfying at a very deeply spiritual level. It's a spiritual direction that's possible if you cure yourself of fiat addiction. You know, no matter what, the dollar, the fiat system is collapsing. So in, in one way, you're not going to have any choice, just like, you know, comparing it to previous empires, because I know, you know, people have a hard time seeing what's around them. They, 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 you know, they're really patriotic. They really love Rachel Maddow. They love Joe Biden. They think his message, whatever that might be, if they can understand it, you know, that it's an amazing message. And they, you know, they, they, they're filled with these. So that's why when we cover on Kaiser Report and now Orange Pill podcast, you know, we, we like to provide context historical, like, so, okay, you don't know any Romans right? Like ancient Rome. <laughs> They're all gone. Julius Caesar's dead. So let's, uh, let's like look what they did and, and try to understand human nature that way or the nature of power and what happens and wh why they had, how they financed the bread and circuses. They, they, they had it. The reason they had the bread and circuses was in order to stay in power because they didn't want the people to rise up, but how they financed it, of course, is they had to go sack and steal it from somebody else, right? They went all over the Middle East, all across France, all across, you know, they were sacking other nations, or I guess they weren't called nations then, but like other regions of the world and taking their stuff. And that's essentially what we do, right? That's what we have to do to maintain our empire and the bread and circuses. Like the vast majority of Americans clearly don't work, right? Because they've all lost their jobs, whatever those jobs were. But what? There's still food in the in the grocery store. There's still stuff happening. Like the the world hasn't collapsed, and yet we're all sitting home. Doesn't that make you wonder? Like, what is the point of most of the work? Like, what were what was anybody doing? Well, basically, we've been um, sacking the world with our debt money, right? So we've just been <laughs> defrauding the world. I don't, you know. I don't know what they got out of it. China got a huge industrial power base, I guess. They, 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 that's the trade they made, but I don't know what and a lot of other nations made. But nevertheless, like when that exorbitant privilege ends, and it clearly is going to end because at this point, the U.S. has lost the ability to lead, just like all empires eventually lose the ability to lead because they lost that hunger and understanding of how to build wealth and how to maintain it. And, you know, so what are they doing? And what are we doing in the last 10, 15 years? More and more and more censorship. Well, if you want to have the, the rails 
upon which the global financial system operates the US dollar. And then you start, first you censor Iran, then you censor Venezuela, then you censor Russia, that now they want to censor some of the Chinese. And you're like, well, you do see what happens, right? It's only natural that you could use that weapon once or twice, and they're going to come up with alternatives, right? And a lot of those nations, by the way, are turning to uncensorable money like Bitcoin or gold. These are censorship resistant. I mean, uh, obviously, gold is a little bit more difficult to um, transport from point A to point B, but um, they're going to go with a more fungible uh, censorship resistant money. There's a lot of different ways in which the media is going to be incentivized to tell the truth. But I think what you're saying is right, that a lot of these companies are just not going to reform and change their ways. What do you think takes over sort of the current media landscape um, after a lot of these uh, companies collapse. You know, I love the example of um, CNN and Ted Turner as far as media goes, because any of those major networks could have done what CNN did, right? But this guy in Atlanta, Georgia, Ted Turner said, I'm going to create 24-hour news. And he invented 24-hour news. It'll be some entrepreneur uh, or a group of entrepreneurs that uh, figure out how to crack this nut and they'll be they'll take over the space that that's the 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 entrenched oligopoly won't be the ones that make the change it's got to come from outside you know elon musk certainly has proven that on a number of different fronts and um you know you see this over and over again entrepreneurs in in the u.s there is an environment that's good for entrepreneurs you know i hate to see that go you know and I, i think that that's kind of the risk that we have now is that we're cutting off the entrepreneurial space, which is sad, but uh, maybe uh, maybe as has happened in the past, the, the, somebody will come in the nick of time to save the day. That's generally the script we find in America. Well, you can't change human nature. And there has always, always, always been the storyteller, the bard, the poet, the itinerant musician, chronicler, troubadour, the minstrel. You know, for hundreds of years, we had what were called minstrels across Europe, and they were like entertainers, musicians, jugglers, singers, fools. And so people are always wanting to talk, always wanting to gossip, always wanting to say what they see, transmitting information to each other. And you saw that for thousands of years across Europe, across the ancient world. And this has always been the case. A lot of them turn to satire and juggling and acting like the jester or the fool in order to not be beheaded. But, you know, the fact is that people want to talk and they want to, they, people want to listen to stories as well. You know, this is part of our DNA as humans is to tell each other stories. So that's always going to happen. Now, of course, the stories we like to hear are of good versus evil, the bad guy versus the good guy, the good guy has to win, right? And you know, we usually tell ourselves that we're the good guy, no matter how many people we're killing. We're doing this for your own good. We're destroying the village to save the village. We're doing all that stuff. In terms of of, of what Ted Turner did with CNN, he did launch this 24-hour news channel. And of course, what did he start with? The Iraq War One. So it was like covering live b- burnt, you know, it was the gladiators of our days. Like this is this is the this is the gore people like to see. Bitcoin was so genius with that game theory. Like you, you can't deny human nature. Okay, like the fact that for thousands of years we seem to revel in like bloody war and and beheadings and 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 gladiator games of one form or another. Whether it's you know even just like the whole outrage culture. Okay, like mm-hmm. trying to deplatform and memory hole another human being is the equivalent of a modern age of what the audience in the Coliseum wanted to see. They wanted to see whatever their favorite gladiator was. They wanted to see him destroy the other person and rip out his heart and and organs, right? They wanted to see that. And that's the same thing to this day that still happens. Like you want to see that get chased offline as well. You must fire this person because they said something horrible on Twitter. That was a horrible tweet and they must not be forgiven. Like this is one of the actual what your audience wants. So that's always a conflict with, for the entertainer, the bard, the poet, the singer. Yeah. Yeah. To bring it back to Bitcoin and two, and just looking around the world, I mean, I see what's happening in Nigeria. So there's a third of the population is now using Bitcoin. It's the most advanced Bitcoin country in the world. They're heading toward hyper Bitcoinization. 
And of course, with that comes tremendous advantages and familiarity with encryption. So let's say in Nigeria, they go behind a wall of encryption when it comes to intellectual property, and they totally ignore all IP copyright laws. And people start creating culture in media with stuff that is the U.S. claims is copyrighted. And yet Nigerians will say, well, come and get it, along with our Bitcoin, which happens to be completely encrypted and inaccessible and unconfiscatable. And they just create a new culture, recycling the old culture in a way that no corporation can touch them. So, you know, Top Gun comes out and then a week later, it's Nigerian Top Gun and, uh, and, and the studio can't stop them. And now they've got, they're communicating now culturally without the burden of onerous copyright, which is a drag on economic growth in many, many ways. And that could be the ground zero for a new global consciousness, economy, culture, and media to erupt. Uh, you know, my, my bet right now, if I had to pick, it would be Nigeria. Well, that's that's obviously very interesting, and then uh, the Nigerian culture is amazing and creative. It's it's always been like that, but it's obvious that uh, Bitcoin has uh, offered them also a way to communicate with the outside world because they are, of course, you know, they're not on a sanctions list from the U.S. dollar, but they are like most of Africa is cut off from the financial grid just because of of KM, KYC and AML laws. So th- that's why they need Bitcoin in order to buy goods and services overseas or sell goods and services overseas to participate in the global economy. But in terms of censorship resistance and this, um, the IP laws, you know, one thing that's really interesting, and I mentioned the, you know, pre-1971 when we went off the gold standard and all that cultural revolution stuff happening in America, not like the Chinese cultural revolution, but the, the you know, the free love and the hippie movement and all that sort of stuff is that you think of that time period and you think of music, right? You think of like Bob Dylan, like Nina Simone, Gil Scott Heron, like they were able to communicate this message of free love and hippie and and the anti-war movement through songs. Well, we don't, we can't really share that online anymore. We can't create that sort of community because of the record companies. The algorithms like instantly recognize it on a YouTube, for example. You, they just get deplatformed instantly. So you can't, like music is no longer an option, but we have memes and those are so fast at transmitting information. And, and you can even see that. What are, in this, since post-2016, what is the big concern by the intelligence agencies? memes. They keep on talking about memes. Memes are controlling the population. But so this is the way to communicate these messages of this, of Bitcoin, of of the resistance to this sort of, you know, fiat cantillon effect uh, money system. Right. And memes are an outgrowth of advertising, the subliminal advertising and the subconscious advertising that drove consumerism. But now that power is in the hands of the consumer who can make these memes and communicate with a global audience instantaneously. So that power pendulum swings from Madison Avenue, you know, as what that represents, to 4chan, right? 4chan has more power than Madison Avenue ever had. And (laughs) apparently they killed Hillary Clinton's chances to win in 2016 with the Pepe the Frog meme. (laughs) And um, so that's just using the, it's jujitsu, isn't it? Uh, They're using the power of the oppressor against them. Using you know using the power of uh, you know Bitcoin, using the idea of hard money against the system, against the entrenched oligopolist, against the powerful. It's using their the tools their tools against them, uh, and so that's how that's how you see these these revolutions and these these jumps in 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 society. I guess you could say or evolutionary jumps. You know that's the the oppressor figures out how to use the power that's being exerted upon them to reflect it back to the oppressor, to destroy the oppressor. It's a David and Goliath story, right? So that's what Bitcoin is. It's that's what it's doing to banks and central banks. It's just taking this idea of hard money and it's, and it's using it as a rock to crush the people who say that they are in possession of the quote unquote money. It's interesting how you guys uh, seem to, take advertising, entertainment, and news, and 
they all seem kind of similar for you almost. Like they, they have the same tool set, the same ways of communicating, I guess. Um, and I, I guess what you're saying is that that power is now available to the people. And in a sense, what replaces a lot of uh, the current media complex is other people or entrepreneurs or people that can figure this stuff out in a new way that does these things with a level of potency that probably we haven't seen uh, before. I think that's true. Yeah. And, you know, I want to tell you something, a a lesson from UCLA script writing school and Hollywood script writing. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, though you think of a script as written word, of course, film is a visual medium. So the best, like the most uh, pure form of communicating through film is with no words. So if you could just show visually two scenes juxtaposed together to tell you a story that would otherwise take 10, 15 pages of prose and dialogue to explain what's happened. Like you open on a, on a, you know, a few, the, the dirt being thrown into a coffin as it somebody's been buried and you see a woman crying next to it. And then the next morning you see her at the coffee table, uh, you know, crying at the, at the breakfast table and you, you know, she's a widow, right. Or she's lost her family. Like you don't need to like show all the car accident or whatever happened. And like, you don't need to show all that long story. You just told the story. So we like, we always do that with our content. You, we try to juxtapose two stories. It could be from, you know, the world of finance and, uh, you know, a meme or, a, you know, a cultural event or something. And trying to just show a story that way um, to communicate more than just that one item. A lot of the news, if you notice, they just stay, they provide no context whatsoever. So, <laughs> for example, they, they'll like, we were talking about the whole Russiagate stuff. They'll, they'll say like, oh my God, you know, these Russians, they have sock puppets online and they operate online. And you're like, okay, so what's the context? Does the US operate online? Do our intelligence services, do British intelligence services, do Israeli, do Chinese, do like all the other nations? Yeah, they do. And it's like, okay, so it's not an, oh my God. <laughs> it's like, we all do this. And <laughs> we found their, it, 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 they claim, you know, if, if you could see them, then maybe that's a better thing, right? Maybe that's a conversation to have. Yeah, as far as juxtaposition goes, it's also very true in humor. You know, humor is basically juxtaposition in a way that causes people to laugh. You know, you're putting two images together that people don't expect to see together. So a lot of the times the humor in what we do is to set a certain pace of this. Like, we're going to show you juxtapositions on the news, in finance, and just outright humor. But the point is that the pace is you're you're going to be taking on this truthful, exercise of truth. Uh, And we can prove it's true because you are smiling. You're laughing. Why are you laughing? Because you know it's true. That's the power of the comedian to wield truth. Um, So we mix that in with our other reportage. Your brain is going to make the association. Well, if that's true, then this is probably also true. Okay. Oh, by the way, they've been doing this for 10 years. And a lot of what they've said for 10 years has turned out to be true. So it just becomes an overwhelming body of truth. Um, So at this point, uh, we've been right so many times about so many things. Like we talked about the fact that fracking was a hoax five, six years before the industry finally said, you know what? Fracking is a hoax. We talked about Buffett being a predator, being overrated, underperforming the market for 15 years. And, you know, would eventually start buying gold as a way to get out of the hole he dug himself into. That's exactly what he just did. He talked about Bitcoin when it first started as being gold 2.0, as being, you know, tracking it for nine years. That's exactly what happened. And so no other outlet in the world has had this body of work for 10 years that's been so far ahead of everybody else and predicting exactly what to expect. And so that's why the audience is as big as it is. Uh, you know, it's tens of millions of people every week. It's dubbed into Spanish and gets 30 million more viewers every week. And, um, you know, because people, once they start watching our show, they everything else looks really stupid in comparison. <laughs> it, it, it's like you can't watch MSNBC anymore because you just, 
the 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 puppet strings controlling Rachel Maddow's mouth just start to pop out, and you see them quite clearly. It's like it's just unwatchable at that point. Mm. And would you say that your audience is largely people that are looking to consume more truth um, rather than, say, be uh, entertained with outrage uh, by what Rachel Maddow says? Everyone has an inherent thirst for truth. That's our nature. And that's what we, once people start watching it, they're like, I like it because I naturally gravitate toward truth because it's satisfying. And that's who that's who the audience is. People who are naturally satisfied by the truth. That's who, that's our audience. But also, you know, I mean, what is truth, right? There's <laughs> thousands of years of philosophy trying to figure out what truth is. So all we can do is try to not like especially have political bias. Oh my God, to like to be a partisan, to be a, a member of a party. <laughs> I mean, th- these are the dumbest people on earth, right? Like everybody who's not a partisan can see how dumb partisans are. Like if you're like a Republican or a Democrat, like no matter what, you're like, oh my God, like how embarrassing. What these the lies that they have to tell themselves to get through the day must be huge. So I, uh, you know, we are lucky in that like again we we don't like have to conform everything we observe in the financial system and the monetary system and the economic system geopolitics geoeconomics it all interests us so we're like renaissance guy and girl here like we like to like look at all the world and and figure out what's happening and you know not try to force it into like a keynesian perspective or an austrian school perspective or like anything like we're not trying to force it into one thing we're just observing and trying to communicate what we see and you know of course everybody should read as much stuff as they can online that's what we do like it was kind of easy in the uk because it's 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 they're not as like um hyperbolic wwe like uh you know cable news here <laughs> And they had different print media, so they had, uh, uh, you know, a Tory newspaper. Then they had the 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 you know Guardian's Labor newspaper. So you could read the same story covered by both sides, and you know, like, okay, that one's probably lying in that direction, and that one's e- embellishing in that direction, and somewhere in there lies the truth or a semblance of a truth. It's a little bit harder in the US in that it's just like really radical extreme um, Republican or Democrat media. There's almost like zero uh, coverage. There's no data provision that is not twisted. Like the, even like the whole mail, the USPS story, like it's all just like, I thought it was actually a story. And now it turns out it's just like a total fabrication, right? It's not even a story. It's just fake. Uh, In terms of observation, I want to say, you know, Max and I moved back to the States in August of 2016, maybe late July. And we had come from the United Kingdom, you know, Brexit had just happened or been voted for. And so we only really saw CNN and whatever online coverage of the elections. And we were, we assumed, right, like the news was right, that Hillary was going to win in a landslide. And that there was no other option. But so we, we arrive in North Carolina, which is considered a swing state. It's a purple state. It can go either way. And we're in North Carolina, the most um, liberal area of all of North Carolina. And we observed, and thus I told my audience, I said, just so you know, we've been driving around North Carolina for the last three, four weeks. And it dawned on me, we don't see any Hillary Clinton bumper stickers or yard signs at all. And we actually see uh, quite a few Trump ones, not like a whole bunch. We, we actually saw a whole bunch of Bernie bumper stickers. And so like we just made that statement like this here. My, I have two eyes. I can see and observe what one would expect. Hillary is supposed to win the state by five points. And we live in the liberal area. And so I'm telling you, there is no sign of support for her. Well, she lost by five points here. But when we told people that she that we saw just our observation is that we saw no signs. Uh, people ye- yelled at me like in in the YouTube they were calling me like a hater and that um this is propaganda and I want her to lose or and I was and that I was a Trump supporter and I was like I'm like I didn't <laughs> make any op- statement other than fact. I just told you I don't see any Hillary bumper stickers, so you know. And so who were those people getting angry? Like 
remember, the, the, these are the audience of MSNBC, but these are the voters too. So when you get into a bread and circus cycle, like it's a, it's a doom loop. Like these people want denial. They don't want to hear the truth. And so like if your job is supposed to be to report the truth, well, then it becomes a very sticky, complicated situation to the point we, where we now have these truth committees like determining what news on, on Facebook is, is real or fake. I mean, how ridiculous and absurdly Soviet is that? You got shot as a messenger telling people what you saw, but that, that I guess it is showing sort of the decline of uh, the role of uh, media uh, in people's minds. Final questions for you guys. Five years from now, what's your best and worst case scenarios for Bitcoin? I always think it's either just going to go to zero or it's going to go to 100,000, 200,000. And it will be, it. well, it, it is already a global unit of account, as Max pointed out, with Nigerians. Nigerians buy it to as a unit of account in order to purchase used cars from Japan. There's a big trade between them with used cars sent to Nigeria, but because of the banking system, they, they can't access. It's hard for them to convert to dollars and then buy the car and blah, blah, blah. So they, they already use Bitcoin. So I think it's, I, I think it could be like, like that, like, um, you know, the authorities didn't pay attention to Bitcoin early enough to stop it, right? So it's way too big now for them for, to stop it. And the same thing will happen with this. It won't be like something imposed top down, like the US dollar standard is like, okay, Nixon says, we're on a US dollar standard and the world must follow. It, this will be just like from the ground up. It'll be Nigeria. It'll be other parts of Africa, South America, Asia. That'll just be on a, on a Bitcoin standard and they didn't ask for permission. It just happened. And then there's those are the facts on the ground now, and you can't stop it unless you're going to bomb half the world. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the countries that adopt it will be the strongest countries. So if the U.S. is not one of those countries, then in order to do business with those countries, they'll have to buy Bitcoin first. Just like if other countries, before they can buy oil, they have to buy the U.S. dollar first, right? Japan, mm -hmm. for example, they're heavily dependent on importing oil, but they have to buy dollars first before they buy oil. Uh, that's true for everybody in the world. Now, if um, a few countries become uh, industrial powerhouses on the back of the Bitcoin standard, then other countries, before they can do any business with them, are going to have to buy Bitcoin. So it's just, it's just the, only, the only question is who, what country or region is going to emerge in, 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 this, uh, in this new paradigm. So I, I would guess I would I would guess that the U.S. would not be that country, you know, uh, with the proviso that the U.S. has a history of coming in at the last second. You know, the U.S. could come in and say, "We're going to like do a moonshot program, except we're gonna we're gonna convert you know eighty percent of our energy to mining Bitcoin and accumulating Bitcoin to become the global Bitcoin superpower." You know, they, they might do that. I mean, that would be the best thing they could do. Uh, they probably won't, though, because everything is disintegrating now so rapidly. I don't I don't see them able to pull anything off like that. So it'll be it'll be uh, somewhere else. You know, don't exactly know where yet, but uh, it's taking shape. You know, a few years ago, you had that huge earthquake in Indonesia, like the 9.0 or 9.2 that caused a tsunami on Boxing Day, uh, December 26, and t thousands of people were killed. But one thing that was a, a story told at that time was that in Thailand, all, you know, a lot of people, the tourists would ride elephants along the beach. And the elephants ran for the hills, and they were trying to stop the elephants from running away. And the humans are just like walking around, not understanding what's happening. And they were chasing the elephants, trying to drag them back to the beach. And the elephant's like, no way, dude, I'm not going down there. <laughs> and the same thing you could see happening right now. So the signs you're seeing now, we're, we're, they're going to play out over the next five years. So this past week or two, we saw Warren Buffett going long gold. And that's, that's the elephant running for the hills. Before that, we saw Paul Tudor Jones and a really important figure in the hedge fund industry historically, and that he is not only long gold, but he said the fastest horse in the race is going to be Bitcoin. Like these are the these are the elephants of the financial space running for the hills, and you either should uh, get jump on their back and run away with them, uh, and not get caught up in the in the fiat tsunami when it wipes everything out, 
or, you know, just prepare to die in that fiat apocalypse. All right. So uh, five years from now, I guess that's your uh, kind of best and worst case scenario. Worst in the sense that fiat's going to collapse, but best in the sense that whoever has Bitcoin is going to be doing very well. How about uh, the media landscape? What do you think it'll look like in about 20 years? I think <laughs> I think it's going to become even more uh, hyper crazy. But you know that that's the like the corporate media. I think they're going to go even more insane, and a, as they lose relevance, because you know they're going to do any crazier and crazier things to get any attention. And I think you know they have been pretty successful right now at deplatforming a lot of voices online. And if you look at YouTube pre 2016, 2017, you look at any Fox News, not well, Fox News a little bit, but CNN and MSNBC in particular, look at all their content and never, ever got more than 2000 views. Well, now it gets like 200,000 views. And why? Well, because they they were going after using their airtime to go after nonstop Google and blaming them for Hillary's loss. And and it was the Russians using YouTube and blah, blah, blah. So basically what they've done is give them force a lot of people to watch um, MSNBC and CNN accidentally kept, keep on pushing that content into their feed in order to calm down, you know, the the people at CNN and MSNBC. But I think, you know, there will be we we will have to find a way to uh, provide because people want to be storytellers. They do want to tell their story. They want to communicate with each other. We're going to have to find a way to. Uh, uh, they'll continue to outcompete them. The 4chans and meme makers of the world will continue to build their audiences and the people want to listen to them tell the story rather than Rachel Maddow. So that will be a conflict. I don't know how it'll end up or like how violent the U.S. state will have to get to maintain the the you know the audience numbers for for MSNBC and CNN and Fox. But you know it, it is a conflict. I, I do see becoming um, more open. Yeah, I think I think the sharing economy, what you see that in ride sharing and pool sharing and house sharing, I think it's going to be applied to brain sharing, brain Whoa. hacking, right? <laughs> so that you'll be able to allow people to rent your mind for an hour or two. <laughs> no, no, think about this. So you've got Musk is coming out with Neuralink. So he's providing a pipe into your brain, essentially. That's going to be online in a within two or three years. And he says you'll be able to pipe music in directly into your cerebral cortex. So he's, he's building a, essentially a pipe to your brain. So let's say you can safely have a site called Brain Hacking or something like that. And so somebody will pay me $100 to live in my brain for an hour, right? And they'll see the world as Max Kaiser sees it oh my in God. my brain, right? So that that's where the media, I think, is going to go. Indeed, that is... Uh fascinating thought and uh and i i kind of wish we could do another one where we just talk about sci-fi ideas like that thank you for joining me in this uh in this conversation it's been very enlightening thank you jimmy song this was fun now we have to get onto our spaceship and go to andromeda <laughs> galaxy i gotta i gotta stop recording now thanks guys okay. ciao yeah. well that wraps it up for this episode of bitcoin fixes this Max and Stacy can be found at at RealMaxKaiser and at Stacy Herbert on Twitter. Until next time, Fiat Belinda Est. <laughs>